Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have quite an interesting guest, you know, going from academia now to being an operator and doing something that is remarkable. I think that you're going to find it really unbelievable. But I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Peter Donnelly. Welcome to the show. Well, uh, hi and thank you very much. So Peter, so tell us a little bit about your upbringings because uh, everything started for you in Australia. So how was life growing up there? Uh, that's right. I'm uh, Australian by birth and a proud Australian. Uh, still, I grew up in Brisbane, in Queensland, in Australia. I went to school there, fantastic school, which I really enjoyed. You know, as is the case in Australia, involved uh, lots of things outside schoolwork, lots of sport. I loved playing cricket and rugby. I sailed a bit, you know, enjoyed schoolwork and met uh, fantastic friends uh, who have remained good friends for the rest of my life. And tell us about public speaking. Because that was something that, you know, you've uh, found, you know, quite uh, useful, you know, over the years, but something that you actually developed very, very early on there. Yeah, I did. In um, Australia at the time, and actually still, and in some other parts of the world, uh, debating was a formal competitive thing. So there was a, a structure and there were teams. And I debated for my school uh, and was lucky enough to be chosen to represent the state team when I was at at school's level, and then in my university career in Australia, I was selected, um, in fact, as captain of the adult state team. So that early experience of kind of public speaking and arguing and so on has actually been incredibly helpful throughout my career. It's all about, um, you know, so many aspects of, of our lives are about communication, and I was lucky enough to have that kind of grounding early on in my career. That's amazing. So in your case, obviously, you know, certain things led uh, one thing to another, and you ended up in, in the UK. So, uh, you know, what happened there? And, and I guess, you know, it was uh, ultimately your PhD, but well, that's quite a transition. So tell us about that. Yes. Um, so I, I grew up, uh, went to school in Australia, and then I did my first degree. I did a science degree at the University of Queensland, um, majoring in mathematics. And then at the end of that process, I was keen to go on to do um, further research, to do it, to do a doctorate. Uh, and I was lucky enough to be awarded a Rhodes Scholarship. So the Rhodes Scholarship then sends people to Oxford. Um, and so I moved from Brisbane to Oxford as a um, PhD student, or in Oxford they're called, uh, doctorates are called DPhils, and had three incredible years as a student in Oxford. Uh, 
good academically, but fantastic in terms of experience, a chance to uh, understand and, and learn a different culture. It's a very, very international university. So I had friends from all over the world, including many friends who were UK based. Uh, and Oxford is a place I fell in love with. I arrived, you know, within my first term, I'd fallen in love with Oxford. The, the, the beauty, the history, the sense of scholarship, uh, you know, and, and an amazingly interesting and vibrant community of, of friends, uh, fellow students. It's college based, which so there are a bunch of people you get to know really well. I played sport with them and so on, but, but, but across the colleges through the Rhodes connection and then many other ways. It was just a fantastic three years of my life. And why, out of all things, academia? Why did you decide that academia was your, your path? Great question. You know, I love doing research. I, I, my doctorate was about research in mathematics. I was developing mathematical models for real-world phenomena that, that involve randomness. So actually epidemics, which is timely these days, but also um, genetics, the ways in which populations evolve. So I love doing that work. Um, I was reasonably good at it, actually, in, in my time in Oxford. I spent a lot of time doing things other than my academic work, but somehow or other managed to finish the doctorate um, and was keen to try and pursue an academic career. You know, I enjoyed the teaching side, but the opportunity to keep doing research. It's an extraordinary privilege as an academic to, um, to be able to focus on, on pushing research forward in your chosen area. So what were some of those uh, projects that you were involved with as well? Because obviously... You were probably a sought-after, you know, individual, you know, for your expertise. So, what were some of those projects that, over the course of time, you were involved with that were either at a national level or international level that perhaps the listeners, you know, might are going to really, you know, get a get a good take kick from from listening to? What were some of those as examples? Yeah, I was involved in um, in various things across my career. I was lucky in my career to work um, for most of the time at universities in the UK, but for some of the time at universities in the in the USA, the University of Michigan for a while. And the University of Chicago. Um, one area I worked in in the early 1990s was um, DNA evidence, so the way in which that should be quantified in courts. And that was quite interesting, actually. When I was growing up, I'd been a bit undecided about whether to become a lawyer or to do mathematics, and it brought those two things back together. So thinking about evidence and how to present evidence, and then I was involved as an expert witness in various court cases. That was one interesting area. Um, my research had been in mathematics, but I moved it um, uh, 20 or 25 years ago. It evolved more and more into genetics. And I kind of went from being someone who found the inherent mathematics interesting to getting to a position where actually I learned about the science. And what I was really driven by was solving the scientific problems. And I was very fortunate. The last 20 years have been an extraordinary time in our knowledge um, and understanding of genetics and its, its involvement in common diseases. And I was lucky enough to be involved uh, in the leadership role in the project which followed on from the Human Genome Project, uh, something called the HapMap Project, which uh, characterized patterns of genetic variation in different parts of the world. I led uh, in the UK some of the very large national and then, and then international studies that really changed our knowledge of the genetic basis of common human diseases. In, in say, 2005, we, for the common human diseases, we knew a handful of, of examples of bits of DNA, DNA changes, which affected people's susceptibility of developing those diseases. And then over a, a number of years from then, because of this, the particular type of study, so-called genome-wide association studies were able to do, that knowledge just exploded. And you know, whereas 15 years ago, there were a handful of these examples, there are over hundreds of thousands. 
of them now. And I was very lucky to be leading many of the large studies that disease by disease helped unravel the genetic components of, of disease susceptibility. And I'd like to ask you as well about, you know, obviously, you know, it's a, what you're up to now, you know, which is your baby, your company. But I guess before we go into that, you know, which is quite timely for your expertise, you know, the, the, what we've experienced with COVID, you know, has been pretty crazy. You know, the type of diseases that, you know, we get to experience as human beings, you know, once every 100 years or so. But it seems that, you know, from what, you know, experts, you know, are saying, you know, they, they think that this could be something that we're going to be seeing more more often, you know, than, than what we were used to before. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, do you think that COVID type of situations are going to be happening, you know, happening more, more often than that what we were exposed to before? Or what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I should say I, I don't have any particular expertise in this, but, but broadly, I think that's the case. Um, the level of movement in the world now um, makes transmissions of new uh, infectious viruses and bacteria much, much easier than it was uh, even a uh, hundred years ago. And, and we've seen that with COVID and we're still seeing it with COVID, new variants that are particularly virulent arise in one part of the world. And within months, you know, they, they're dominant in countries literally on the other side of the world. So uh, I think that's a factor. One would hope that in terms of pandemics, if there are more pandemics in the future, and there will be, I think the question is when, we'll be a bit more prepared. We'll learn the lessons from this time around. I think, you know, as as different societies, we've had variable success in learning lessons and, and it's a tough it's a tough game. But I think you're right that that we need to be aware that this these sorts of issues will be a part of our future much more than they've been a part of our past. So let's say let's switch gears here because after 25 years of really being involved with Oxford, you know, as um, as a professor there, really the opportunity of becoming an entrepreneur really came knocking at your door. So tell us about you know how did the whole experience of genomics come about and uh, and 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 tell us about you know the launching of this project and you really going from academia to actually being an operator and an entrepreneur yourself. Uh, yes. So let me take both parts of that question uh, separately. So I, I've been very lucky to be right at the center of what some people have called the genetic revolution, the, the, the transformation in our knowledge of how genetics plays into common human diseases. And throughout all of that, the, the pace of the science was extraordinary. Uh, over 10 or 15 years, the, the pace of discoveries was amazing. And every year, with every talk we gave and every paper we wrote and with every grant we wrote, we'd say somewhere, usually at the beginning and the end, these advances are going to have a big impact on patients. And yet it sort of dawned on me over time that we kept saying that and, and people in the academic side mean well, but they weren't actually having much impact on patients. And on reflection, there are a number of reasons for that. It's partly to do with the incentive structure in the academic world. But it's also because going from a scientific breakthrough to something which matters in this case most naturally in healthcare is a hell of a lot of work. And there's there's as much or more of a gap to bridge there as there is in doing the science in the first place. So with some colleagues uh, seven or eight years ago, I was at the time uh, director of a very large genetics research center, a big interdisciplinary center in Oxford called the Wellcome Center for Human Genetics. Um, one of my senior colleagues, Gil McVeigh, was head of Oxford's Big Data Institute. And with two other colleagues, we founded Genomics PLC 
wanting to do two things. The first piece was to keep doing what we felt, and I hope others would still feel is world-leading science. But the second piece was to build on the other aspects of, of the architecture that we needed to get that science into healthcare. And that's the vision behind the company. We organized uh, a group of the best and brightest in our fields as a startup, um, and genomics was formed. And we've had a kind of, you know, an interesting journey, and I think made good progress, but there's lots and lots still to do in terms of transforming the power of genetics and the power of genomics to making a real difference in healthcare. So then tell us about what's the business model of genomics uh, and, um, and yeah, how, how are you guys planning to, to or, 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 or really have in mind making money with it? We do that in two different ways and they're complementary. So I'll explain them, them both. One part is in drug discovery. You know, many listeners will be aware that at the moment, in spite of hundreds of billions of dollars spent a year by pharma and biotechs on R&D and incredibly smart people, most drug targets fail when they get into clinical trials. Only 10% or fewer of them actually succeed. And there are many reasons for that. But, but one of the main reasons is that the choice of target, the protein or the piece of biology that the drug is, is targeting, turns out not to be very relevant for the disease in question. And we only learn that very late on. Um, we have to develop molecules that target that protein. We then have to try them in humans. That process is incredibly expensive and it takes many years. And then over 90% of, of drugs uh, fail when they get to clinical trials. So the very simple idea about how genetics can help there um, and now growing amounts of data which show empirically that it does, but, but informally, when we give someone a new, or think about giving someone a drug, we're trying to change some little piece of their biology. We're trying to stop a protein from working, for example. And at the moment, to know whether that works, we have to develop a way of, of making that change, a molecule that interacts with the protein, and then we have to try it. So the simple idea that underpins the genetic approach is if drugs are trying to change things about human biology, well, we know genetic variants that we carry also change things about human biology. So if you want to know what happens if I, if I modify this protein, we can potentially look in the, we build up a, a, an unparalleled data resource and algorithms, but we can look in that data for individuals who happen to carry a genetic change which affects the same protein. So it's almost as if, and some people have called it nature's clinical trial, it's almost as if um, their genetic change is mimicking the drug that you're thinking of developing. Well, then instead of making the drug, we can just look in the data to see what happens to those people. So that's the kind of high-level idea uh, and uh, about using genetics to find better drug targets. And that's one part of um, our business at Genomics. We have a big partnership with Vertex Pharmaceuticals, who are a very successful um, large biotech, small uh, pharma company, where we find um, drug targets of interest for diseases um, that Vertex are focused on. And then we have some internal drug discovery programs as well. So that's one part of the business around, around drug discovery. The other part is about um, understanding individual risk in healthcare. And it's about um, powering what I think will be a fundamental change in the way we do healthcare. And everyone knows it's, it's, it's true in most developed countries, particularly true in the US, that healthcare systems are probably unsustainable in the current format because the expenditure goes up and up and up. 
everyone says one way of tackling that is to move from trying to fix people when they get really sick to trying to stop them get sick in the first place. So a, a key to making a health system sustainable is the idea of getting much better at preventing disease rather than letting it happen and then try to fix it. Again, genetics is critical there. We've known for many, many years that for all of the common diseases, heart disease, diabetes, breast cancer, prostate cancer, and so on, for all of those common diseases, genetics is a key part of the risk that individuals have. It's why some people are more likely to develop one disease and others are more likely to develop another. So we've known that for a long time, but until very recently, we haven't had a very good way of measuring it. It, it, It's only in the last couple of years that we've worked out how to capture that genetic component of risk for each disease. And we can do that. We can do it using the idea of something called a polygenic risk score. It turns out for any of those diseases, there are literally hundreds of thousands of positions in our DNA, individual positions, that affect your risk of, of, say, heart disease. And there are different 100,000 positions that affect your risk of diabetes. We now can identify those and we can measure them. And although individually they have a small effect on risk, we can just kind of add them up across those 100,000 positions. So that allows us for the first time to understand the genetic part of risk. And here's how you might think of making sense of that. Instead of worrying about people when they're sick, think about people when they're healthy and measure that, those genetics in people, say, in initially, most naturally in middle age. And then we can use the genetic part of risk in some cases with other risk factors, you know, for heart disease, we want to combine blood pressure and cholesterol levels and so on. And we can identify the people who turn out to be at really high risk of heart disease. Now, those people will currently be in, some of them will be invisible to the system because a lot of that risk is genetics, which we haven't had a way of measuring. And so we can identify people who are at very high risk of disease and then work out what to do to prevent disease. In the case of heart disease, a natural thing is lifestyle changes and statins. You know, if we find out that a woman is at high risk for breast cancer, um, and and there are women who have high values of these polygenic risk scores, the top the top three or four percent of the population would have something like um, a thirty or thirty five percent lifetime risk of breast cancer. So, if we can identify those women again, they're currently invisible. We don't know who they are, but if we can measure them then they should be screened earlier. They should have mammograms probably earlier in life and, and more often, or, or MRIs and so on. So the idea is uh, of this new approach, and, and it's been called genomic prevention, is we develop sophisticated tools for understanding people's risk when they're healthy. And then we work out the individuals who are at high risk for each of, of a different set of diseases. And then the health system can do what it needs to do to reduce that risk. You know, whether it's statins or screening for, for some of the cancers and so on. The result of that is that instead of waiting till people get really sick and fixing them, we can catch disease early by screening or in some cases prevent it altogether. So, so it, it, it will empower a potential shift in healthcare. So that's, that's a high level idea. Then the, to go back to your question, how do you make a living out of that if you're a company? Well, we put a lot of effort in developing those methods. We've got the most powerful methods available and we're at the stage of doing implementation studies we're doing a, a study in the in heart disease and cardiovascular disease with primary care physicians in the UK with the NHS we're doing a similar study with colleagues at Stanford in the Stanford hospital systems and we're talking to healthcare systems in the US and the UK and other countries about doing this at a much larger scale that's amazing so uh, and and by the way I think that that's a, a shift and a transformation that is very much needed in 
in healthcare because it just doesn't make any sense that doctors are trained to cure versus being trained to prevent, which I think it, it makes actually more sense. So really amazing. So I guess in terms of financing, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, really caring and ramping this up, you know, it costs quite a bit of money. So how much capital have you guys raised today? We raised uh, a bit under $100 million. Okay, got it. And then in terms of the of the team and the size or scope of the operation, I mean, anything that you can share with us in terms of maybe number of employees or whatever that, is, that may be? Yeah, Genomics currently has a bit over 100 employees. Um, we've got, I would, I would normally say we've got offices in Oxford and Cambridge in the UK and Cambridge in Massachusetts. Actually, we do have the offices. No one's in them at the moment because of COVID, but, but 100 employees split between those three bases for the work we're doing in the UK uh, and in the US. And one question that comes to mind that, um, that I think is going to be very interesting to hear your thoughts is, imagine if you go to sleep tonight, Peter, and you wake up in a world where the vision of you know, genomics is fully realized. You know, what, what, what does that world look like? Uh, well, first of all, it's a world where there are a whole lot of people alive who would not be alive if it doesn't happen. Because for those people, we've been ad- able to identify their risk earlier and take the proportions or get them screened uh, earlier. What does the world look like? It's a world where healthcare is much smarter about understanding risk. You or I probably aren't at high risk for heart disease, and we're probably not at very high risk for prostate cancer, but we're each at high risk for something. And so from the individual's point of view, it's about helping us understand what our particular risks are as we move forward in life. And from the healthcare system's point of view, it's about understanding for each disease, who are the people we really want to pay attention to and get into our prevention programs or our screening programs and so on. So it's about it's about much smarter um, risk prediction and it's about taking clinically actionable steps by existing or new pathways for those high-risk individuals to either stop the disease developing or to catch it early. That's amazing. And I guess, uh, you know, as an Australian there in the UK, you know, I know that you had quite a surreal trip to Buckingham Palace. So tell us about that. Yeah, I was, um, as I said, I'm a proud Australian. I'm also a British now and, and uh, as proud of that. Um, I was very fortunate a couple of years ago to be awarded a knighthood by the Queen in um, each year to celebrate her birthday. She she makes a number of these, um, bestows a number of these honours. And one part of that process is that you get invited to Buckingham Palace for the formal cel- ceremony. Um, I learned an interesting thing about the English language. The So uh, you literally do the thing that one sees in movies. You kneel down. Um, and a member of the royal family puts a sword on each shoulder. Um, that pro- I, I learned an interesting thing about the English language. That ceremony is called the accolade. So nowadays we use the word accolade to mean something which bestows honor or, or recognition on someone. Um, it used to mean exactly that ceremony, the ceremony where someone is, is made a knight by having the sword put on both their shoulders. So I, I was lucky enough actually just before the pandemic started in, in February last year to visit Buckingham Palace um, and Prince Charles put the sword on my shoulders and then presented me with a medal in, in honour of my knighthood. And as you say, for an Australian, for a boy who grew up in, in Brisbane, that trip to Buckingham Palace was an extraordinary experience, you know, an amazing thing for me and for me to be able to share with my kids and my partner. Oh, I can, I can imagine. And uh, I guess, you know, obviously, you know, now you've been at it, you know, with the company for, for a little bit, uh, and uh, you've probably learned, you know, a lot. And if you had the opportunity of going back in time, let's say I put you into a time machine, 
and I'm transporting you back to that moment where you were thinking about, you know, really bringing this to life. And you had that chance of having a chat with your younger self and giving your younger self one piece of advice before launching the business. What would that be and why based on what you know now? I'll cheat and 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 give um, two sets of advice. One of them is is a much younger version of myself, if I could go back. And the the learning I'd share with the much younger version of myself is a rather general one, but I think relevant to this. And that is that life is a process that we live in chapters. You know, it's kind of at least when I was young, I used to sort of plan out my whole career doing what I was currently doing. But I've learned, you know, you do something for a while and then you do something slightly different. So that so that that would be one learning. In terms of the company. Um, I guess I would, it's a big leap from the academic world. We talked about this brief, uh, briefly before into a company. Um, there's huge potential to draw on the experience of people who have complementary knowledge and complementary skills. I was incredibly lucky with genomics that we have a chairman who's a serial entrepreneur. He's created lots of companies. He was brilliant for advice and guidance. And more recently in the company, I've got colleagues who have, you know, ironically, that genomics is the first company I've ever worked in. So I've got colleagues who have a lot more experience of that as well. So I think, uh, I think there's a piece about combining the best things from what I had learned from my academic career um, with the complementary uh, sorts of things about uh, running a commercial organization. And it, it's, a, you know, I've, one of the things about my career is that I've loved learning new things and I've, I've really enjoyed this. Um, but it, you know, it's a journey and it's a journey I'm enjoying. And I think I'd like to think still improving it. And I guess that your, your academia years have, have probably given you an edge because when you're an entrepreneur and an operator, especially trying to bring something new to life, it's also trying to make sure that you're able to share that canvas with the colors that you're envisioning to a certain degree. And I'm sure that being able to explain, to teach you know, others over the, over the course of years, maybe it came in handy to be able to share and explain what you were trying to accomplish with genomics so that you were able to really get that storytelling side of it and share it with investors, with employees, and even customers. So what kind of an edge would you think that has given you? I think you're absolutely right. That, that I mean, you'll know from your experience, and I'm sure um, almost all the entrepreneurs you speak to would have something similar. That ability to construct the story and to, to, to tell the story and to bring people on the journey with you, to, to Give them a sense not just of, you know, the kind of factual piece, but the opportunity and the hope, and you know, in our case and in many others, the real excitement. That's absolutely critical, and I think I have been lucky through my academic work in learning about that and in learning how to share and develop that. Uh, you know, I think the other advantage I have as an academic in my current role is many of the people I want to, you know, would like to deal with in senior roles in in pharma companies or in healthcare systems. Are people I know a little bit about from my academic career, or they would know about me from my academic career, and that's quite helpful. I can totally get that. So, I guess Peter, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, email uh, the, or the Genomics uh, PLC website will will have a way of contacting people, and and you know we're very excited about what we're doing and see huge potential, and happy to connect with people if if they see that potential as well. Amazing. Well, Peter, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you very much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value 
either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.